Hello and welcome to the UCL and British Academy podcast series, Working Well with AI. I'm Rose Luckin, Professor of Learner-Centred Design at the UCL Knowledge Lab. In this podcast series, we're exploring how artificial intelligence, AI, is changing the world of work. AI has long been predicted to reshape our working lives, and it has developed in leaps and bounds over the past decade. And as we emerge from a global pandemic, we're rethinking how we work, what sort of work we value, and what we need for the future. In this episode, which is part of the AI and Future of Work project, we're going to be focusing on future skills. As jobs and work will change with the increasing use of AI, we want to think about what future skills are needed to close the AI skills gap in the UK. What are the roles of government, industry and academia in addressing this issue? And how can learning with and about AI be done in an inclusive way? We're going to be discussing what it means to build an AI-enabled workforce. And we're going to try to identify what potentials are yet to be unlocked. And today, I'm really delighted that we have two lovely guests, Dr. Louise Hickman from the University of Cambridge and Jordan Cummings from the CBI. So let's get started. Louise, could you start by telling us what interests you most about AI in work? Thank you. Um, Thank you for having me. Um, In many ways, I take an unusual route into future work, which I draw on a number of disciplines um, from critical disability studies, media communication, and feminist science technology studies. And so I do this to think about how we value and produce and understand how we make our um, accessible infrastructure. So access in this way can range from the availability of data relating to our built environment. Um, It could be the provision of BSL, British Sign Language, for a deaf person working in the workplace. Um, And so these questions around access were driven by my uh, kind of dissertation research, where I really looked at the politics around real-time captioning, which actually we might associate more with courtroom reporting rather than subtitled on our media screens, so which are quite often created after the facts. And with the recent automation of captions, this had led to some tension around the kind of skills and values of human sonographers, especially when we're thinking about access for disabled deaf participants. And in many ways, this research had led into many different areas which we can explore today. But some of those areas, and I think it's relevant when we're thinking about um, AI skills, is thinking about on-demand labour. 
So what did it mean to produce? And what the culture are we producing around this kind of the pressure of on-demand work? That makes so much sense. And I can absolutely see why something this complex needs an interdisciplinary approach. You really do need to pull across multiple disciplines. Thank you, Louise, that, that laid that out so clearly. Um, Jordan, from your perspective, and I know you're super busy this morning, it's the day after the budget that we're making this recording, so there's been a lot going on. What is it about AI and work that you found most interesting from your perspective, please? Thanks, Rose. Uh, And great to be here. Uh, And great to hear about your research, Louise. I'm sure we're going to unpick that a bit later on. Um, It is the day of the budget and the Chancellor has uh, gone kind of uh, big on this kind of high productivity, high skilled job economy that this current government really, really wants to get to. So uh, kind of R&D, AI, technological adoption, these are definitely uh, kind of top of mind for most businesses this week specifically. Uh, And with COP26 next week, there's a lot of businesses working out how they get to net zero in the next kind of 9, 10, 12 years uh, without some kind of machine learning and heavy kind of technological adoption. So the business community is certainly interested in this space at the moment if they don't have all the answers. I think from our perspective more generally, the CBI is the biggest business body in the country. So we try and keep abreast of the big structural changes to the economy that are coming down the line. Um, So uh, even though this technology is relatively nascent for some, uh, at least in terms of mass uptake, um, the business community at large are still, you know, flying a little bit blind. I think especially in that kind of medium to small traditional corporate end, flying a bit blind on kind of what AI, machine learning and these future technological adoptions might actually mean for them and their staff in the next kind of 5, 10, 20 years. Um, so we're keeping an eye on it from a kind of big structural change, things to respond to perspective. But also um, many firms kind of look to us as organising bodies to play that kind of uh, mediator between regulators and policymakers and the business community. So we kind of keep an eye on it for those, those two main reasons. And what kind of makes me most excited, I guess, are kind of two main things. Uh, Firstly is the opportunity economically for kind of AI adoption across the economy is pretty immense. You know, in some respects, we're a global leader in the space already. We rank third globally for VC investment in AI. We rank second on deal count itself. Um, So when we look ahead, there is a kind of strong base to build upon, which is fantastic. And hitting the top of those rankings from a kind of trade and investment perspective should definitely be top of our list. So there's the opportunity, which we really keep an eye on and we really want to keep centre stage. But also there's the kind of the role of regulating such a nascent sector for both improvement and growth at the same time. So allowing the sector kind of space and freedom for R&D. But importantly, while trying to gain trust among consumers and businesses is a challenge that we've seen happen with technological evolution in the past. I mean, if you'd spoken to a lawyer in the early 1990s and told them that they'd be sending confidential drafts across electronic mail in a few years time, almost exclusively, they would have probably laughed in your face. And yet today it's those kind of mass adoptions and barcodes are another one that we don't even give a second thought to now. So uh, we are in many ways kind of on this journey. But I think for us and lots of kind of middlemen, if you will, uh, we just want to make sure that we're kind of regulating for both improvement uh, and growth and improvement kind of includes data and ethics, which I'm sure we'll come on to later. Um, So those are the kind of reasons that they excite us and why we're kind of keeping an eye on it. 
fascinating and then it is really nice actually to be talking after the budget because you know hearing the rhetoric around high productivity high skills is highly relevant when we start thinking about the um, AI skill gap you know there's acknowledgement that the gap exists um, and I understand you know we're missing out apparently on about 63 billion pounds every year um, because of this AI skill gap, there's concern about general AI literacy amongst the population. Um, it's considered to be too low. And so I think it's important to try and unpack the dimensions of the problem we're facing. And I know and it, it, what you've said absolutely um, speaks to this. You know, there's been a lot of attention on helping to build the skills that will help us generate the next generation of AI, keep on being at the, you know, the top of our game and, and internationally comparably with, with respect to AI, big investment in AI. But what about the, the, the workforce who are not actually directly building AI? You know, the, the, the gap for them, which may prevent them from getting fulfillment, getting employment, helping us to be productive in terms of skills in the workplace, but also this more general notion of AI literacy in the population. Um, let me come to Jordan first this time. From an industry perspective, how do you see the AI skills gap? Um, I'd, I'd love to hear your perspective on that and, and what you think the most crucial part of this issue is um, that we need to think about how we address I think for us, because we cover so many sectors, AI kind of falls into a, a bit of a wider landscape of digital and kind of high demand skills that we have a bit of a lack of, actually. You know, for, an, for a country that I just said is a world leader in many respects, there is a there is a bit of a gap there and you've referenced it. I mean, if you take kind of um, as an example, so Accenture, one of our members did a kind of tech vision report this year that showed that there was only about 25 to 27 percent of business leaders who think that their non-technical workforce is kind of prepared to leverage this new technology. And our own analysis, actually, from about 18 months ago, shows that the majority of people in the workforce today, perhaps probably including you and I, will need to reskill at some at some point before kind of 2030, 2035. So on the supply side, on the supply side, high tech digital capability needs very specific support, I think, in the next few years. And when I think about kind of scaling up capability, so not just kind of meeting that gap that exists, but also kind of expanding it so that we can grow this sector. There's a few things that come to mind for us. So we know one of the primary barriers for maximizing the use of data is kind of basic analytical skills for large, complex data sets. And they're really, really invaluable. And some of the funding that was announced by the Chancellor yesterday uh, for those kind of localised skills hub will probably go some way to developing more kind of tangible, targeted provision at local level. But we probably need to be doing much more if we're thinking about where we want to take the sector in kind of 2025 to 2030. So there's kind of that, that analytics is really important in terms of an actual skill set. And then beyond that, there's actually some wider core skills that are probably going to be really important when we look at... Um, kind of uh, scaling up our ambition on AI. So critical thinking, uh, project management, problem solving, these will all be central to any kind of business or institution's capability to adopt AI, balancing stakeholders, staff, the market, management interests, tensions, 
while transforming operations. So those kind of non-core skills are actually not an add-on. They're probably going to be uh, incredibly complementary to those kind of analytical skills. And then just another couple of other things I'd note. Um, there are things that often get overlooked. So uh, there's a big gap we know in kind of procurement skills. So the ability of someone in an office somewhere being able to actually buy these goods and services uh, in a way that is kind of informed and in a way that kind of gets the right product to your business um, is a bit of a gap. So we kind of we don't even have the baseline for people to go out there and shop for the AI that might be available right now. And then the final one, I think, would be kind of um, making sure that skills needs evolve from being weighted just towards specialists where they are at the moment. You know, nascent technology needs lots of specialists to let us know how this is going to be adopted, how it's going to work. Uh, to kind of transform that research into real products and services. But as we get mass adoption, those specialists are going to probably need to become generalists. Um, so we need to make sure that we're kind of set up to move away from just high specialism to more generalist digital skills across the economy as we grow. So I think combined, if we can make progress on those three or four areas, uh, we could start to close that gap, but also start to realise some of that long-term ambition uh, for kind of growing, growing the sector. That's fascinating, and I, I I can certainly see the particular skills you've highlighted as being really important for that the workforce, without doubt. What about the general population? How do you see that problem? I mean, I know personally I've had conversations with some of the big tech companies, and you can sort of understand why they're reticent actually for the entire population to understand too much about data and AI, but of course. I don't agree with that. You know, I think the population does need to understand. But how do we go about doing that? I mean, Finland had their 1%. Let's educate 1% of the population about AI and see how that is. How would you – I know that CBI is, is, is primarily about business, but it, I'd be really interested to know your views about this. Yeah, absolutely. And I think um, we'd be fully in line with the kind of Scandinavian approach to widening participation in some of those specialist skills. So even though I said we need, we need to set up for more generalised digital skills later on, I think when it comes to the general public, you're absolutely right. And what we what we want to avoid is falling into the trap that we've fallen into, perhaps, if we're being open about some kind of financial services products in the past from 30 years ago, when we built a kind of system in which everyone said, well, the general public doesn't need to know about the functioning of yeah. financial markets. And look where that led us. So yes. we, need to, we need to avoid falling into the pitfalls of those kind of sectors that in the past have said, don't worry, because there's someone fan, there's someone intelligent in a room somewhere kind of working it out. And you don't need to know how it works because sometimes they need to be checks and balances. And I think if we think about big tech, the use of data, this will dwarf that kind of financial services example because it will touch every single sector. So I think the onus is definitely on employers uh, to take more yeah. of a leading role and definitely more of a leading role at community level. If, yes. And if you just think about careers advice alone and kind of access to schools, yes, that's the workforce of the future. But until they get there, they're the general population. So there is much more work, I think, that employers and government setting the agenda on this could be doing at community levels to kind of widen this participation. So we agree entirely. Thank you, Jordan. Now, Louise, I'd love to come to you. You know, it's really interesting, Jordan, picking up on scale. Um, there yeah. was a lot of reflection there on scale, you know, um, for critical disability studies. Um, scholars have been 
in the last decade or so have been critiquing the idea of universal design. So there's one design that fits all. And so I think some of the challenges that we have right now is how do we rework the scale? Like how do we, you know, like you, you move between those scales, Jordan, and that's really interesting. And I in the next kind of section here, I, I really want to talk about some of kind of my emerging practices in my own research where I've been thinking about the uh, cultivation of lab spaces. So how do we reframe some of the questions around AI skill gap and in the way that we can think about specifically what we what research, who and what researchers are missing in this area, in tech spaces especially. I mean, we often characterize this issue by referring to a pipeline, you know, to like who yeah. is moving through the pipeline and discussing like, um, which I think, I think it's a mischaracterization. There are researchers out there. And I think actually thinking about that pipeline, there are different types of skills now. So the, and I think this goes back to my earlier point, thinking about um, interdisciplinary work and how do we cultivate those spaces. And so thinking about lab spaces and cultivating and sustaining lab practices. And so when I say lab, I don't mean a kind of computer science driven lab. I mean a lab that is driven, it had a humanist intervention. So perhaps what did a lab mean to have a policy, a senior policy scholar next to an artist, computer scientist, and so forth. And so I think this is um, kind of a reaction against this kind of innovative move that we've often seen coming out of Silicon Valley, you know, the kind of quick fix, you know, that yeah. you, you move quickly. And in that sense, you know, I mean, even if you just look at the culture of hacktivism, right, in relation to perhaps disability, um, you quite often see the disabled uh, people being invited into a space and engineers conjugate to solve a problem. And I think we need to shift that thinking in the sense that actually what we need to build in these kind of lab spaces and sustaining lab spaces. And I keep underlining sustaining here because I really think it, it's really not a culture of quick fix. So in, instead, what, what did it mean to have disability-led design? Mm. You know, what did it mean to have the different stakeholders that are brought together at different, using different range of skills? So not always the subjects. And so in that sense, you know, I think there is ways that we can talk new social science and think about, you know, what does it mean for a lab to meet another lab, right? And this, is, this in itself is moving away from the idea of having conferences 
where we in, um, present individual papers on a problem of AI systems, right? So instead of, so it's like a real kind of, again, I'm reflecting on scale of scholarship here, you know, is what does it mean to kind of work and collaborate with others? I'm really interested in this notion of disability-led design, which makes a lot of sense to me. My background's very much in participatory design, so it rings very true for me. One of the things I find fascinating about AI skills, workplace, general life, is that on the one hand, AI is a tool to help us move away from one size fits all. It's a tool to help us adapt to meet the needs of individuals. On the other hand, actually, it's unfortunately likely to cause quite a lot of inequality and and, and it it has the potential to exclude people. It's it's a real interesting conundrum that I think. And it's all down to the humans, isn't it? It's absolutely down to us to make sure we get it right. This is actually really fascinating, you know, considering we had the uh, budget yesterday and, you know, there's this apparent a move away from austerity, which in itself is really interesting because many of the issues that are kind of being presented in thinking through access, which in many ways, the kind of um, history of access work, which is my make the core of my work, is actually reflect on the kind of welfare provision provided by the UK government through Access to Work programme, which allow disabled people to enter into the workplace, and that will be a kind of pot of money that will support their needs within the workplace, right? So this is a kind of move away from thinking about domestic care and like personal care, but actually what does it mean to have um, support in the workplace, right? So it's interesting, you know, on the back of the budget yesterday, you know, there is a, and the government had previously identified that disabled people need support in the workplace, but there's been um, a considerable cutback on these funds in the last 10 years, which I think in many ways, it had actually caused many problems. What we're actually starting to see now is that there is a two-tier system emerging, particularly in relation to captions, right? So um, there are institutions that can afford to have a human sonographer who is had the skills to support people in real time, so that that kind of on-demand labour coming back. And there is another emergence of cheap, free, live transcription provided by um, various platforms. And so if you kind of move out a little bit and you think, well, what institutions can afford to have the human sonographer in the room. And so these are questions that I think are going to be with us for a long time. And these are kind of, again, reaching up to spaces where we need to talk to policymakers and so forth. Yeah, absolutely. I I couldn't agree more. And and it it always seems to me that the the real um, skill 
that we need is working out what actually should we have the AI doing and what should we still maintain as a human initiative. And sometimes that's because humans have strengths, obviously the AI doesn't and vice versa. But I'm taking from what you're saying, it's not just a simple equation of what's AI good at, what are humans are good at, okay, we'll get the AI to do this and humans to do this. There's actually contextual factors that mean that even when it might actually be a task such as transcription that AI can do, we still need that human resource in order to meet the needs of a diverse population. And of course, we must have a diverse population in order to avoid bias. So it's it's quite an interesting uh, problem, isn't it, that needs to be addressed. Uh, Really interesting. Thank you, Louise. And that leads us very nicely into the next section that I I want to have a discussion about, which is really more about what can we do? You know, so we know we've got this AI skill gap. There's a lot of effort being made to to address it, lots of initiatives, lots of programmes. But actually, what factors have to be met if any of these programs are going to be successful, which is obviously what we want. So, Jordan, to you first on this, what kind of initiatives do you think would be effective and successful to build this AI-enabled workforce? And how do you think that different actors should cooperate to put them in place? This is a real practical question. You know, What kind of initiatives and, and who do we need to get involved is really what I'm trying to get at here, please. Big question, Rose. Uh, I'll give it a go. Um, so I think there are, uh, there's definitely two sides to it. I think you've alluded to it. I think on the kind of uh, structural policymaker, market maker type side, um, there's lots of actions. And I think on the kind of employer, community-based learning, um, what, I, what I deem as the slightly softer side, but not to say it's less important, there's definitely some things. So if you take them in turn, I think on the former, so kind of in terms of who's involved here, you've got government, regulators, probably business leaders, and then probably multinational organisations. So I'm thinking kind of UN, OECD level. So people who set the framework for kind of what we do. Um, There is a real role for leadership here. And I think there's a role for leadership on both sides. And I'll come back to it. There's a role for kind of political policymaker leadership on... Uh, the point I made earlier about this is the ambition for the sector, uh, but these are the kind of the, the criteria that come with it. And we need to make sure that we don't stray too far outside of those parameters. So there's a real role, I think, for kind of bravery and leadership there from policymakers and not being scared of the conversation. You know, we often we're often scared of what we don't understand and lots of AI we don't yet understand. So I think there's a bit of bravery that's needed there from policymakers. And then beyond that, there are kind of levers that they have to pull. So, you know, the tax and R&D systems, we heard loads about it yesterday in the budget, specifically for science. You know, these ecosystems that you can build by increasing tax credits or having carve outs for specific sectors that are high growth, um, they, they kind of seem a bit abstract for the general population. But it's these policy levers that will encourage investment, that will kind of build jobs over the long term. So we shouldn't completely detach it from kind of the everyday lives of people. And then there are some kind of harnessing levers, I would say, that happen at kind of national and local government level. So the people involved here are uh, either your 
um, elected MPs, the cabinet, or when you get down to kind of local level, local level, we're talking about kind of councillors, elected mayors, uh, and kind of the forums that exist for local political change. And they can kind of do three things, I think. So coming back to procurement, uh, I think we need to kind of uh, close those gaps on getting those basic skills so people can kind of buy those products and services. Um, and that will require skills and boot camps and upskilling within the workforce that can be funded by business, but the agenda can be set by politicians. And then there's a role for trade. So that kind of outward looking Britain, you know, what do we want to be buying and selling in the next 10 or 15 years? And kind of taking businesses on a journey as to how they can provide products and services to get there, which also provides jobs for an AI enabled workforce. And then the skills system itself frankly, just needs more funding allocated to the high growth sectors. Um, and we saw some of it yesterday from the Chancellor, but these kind of local boot campy type things uh, that become more tangible, visible things for kind of the general population are within the power of policymakers to make. Um, so those are the kind of structural things that I think policymakers uh, and businesses working together can kind of get to. But on the other side, you've got a real role for kind of uh, corporate and civic leadership, I think, on, um, like we spoke earlier about, like we spoke about earlier, just maximizing the kind of the baseline knowledge of what is going to happen in the economy, regardless of kind of what anyone does individually, the economy is going to change in the next kind of five, 10 to 15 years. So I think starting to bring people on that kind of journey um, and kind of getting some testimonials out there from businesses who could be a bit more honest, I think, about the fact that they are going to need to transform and there is going to be disruption, just like there was in the 80s and 90s, just like there was in the first industrial revolution. There's always disruption when the economy changes. Um, so I think there is a bit of a bit more of a kind of civic leadership role that business leaders themselves should be playing. And I think we should be looking to organisations like the CBI and our counterparts to kind of nudge along and make yeah. sure that those those leaders who aren't political leaders are kind of just seen a bit more regularly in local communities to kind of let, raise that level of knowledge. Yes, um, this all makes very good sense, Jordan, and, and hopefully some of the funding from the, from the budget might help to achieve some of it, but there's obviously quite a long way to go. Um, but some great thoughts on that. Uh, Louise, from your perspective, how do we make sure that these initiatives produce the kind of wide engagement and participation from a diverse um, community? How can we be socially inclusive as we put in place these practical initiatives? And, 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 and how can we be successful um, as we go about this? I mean, you've already talked about disability-led design, and, and there's lots of things you've already said that I think speak to this question, but I'd love to hear from you again about some of them. Yeah, I, I think I can offer another concrete kind of example. Um, this is again is from the kind of ongoing lab work that I do. And this particular um, example is from my time at UC San Diego as part of the Feminist Labour Lab, um, which is led by Dr. Lilia Rani, who's written extensively around mechanical Turks. <laughs> Um, which, which is really interesting in this, in terms of thinking about work. In this lab, we set up a research group where we worked with taxi drivers in the San Diego County 
um, to thinking about how we can think about maintaining public transport system within a car-centric city in Southern California. And so a part of our remit was to design an app which reflects labor practices that were fair for the driver themselves. So a kind of an alternative from Uber. And but what's really interesting, and I think this is um, like I, I guess this is um, a really nice example of how scale can work. You know, within this particular lab, there was the flexibility of thinking about um, wheelchair accessible vehicles in the area. And what, instead of approaching what is the question around other available vehicles, whether they're accessible, we really started to think about the questions from a driver's perspective. Okay, and that's a completely different way of thinking about, you know, thinking about the future of work and labor practices. It's really thinking about what the cost for the driver, right? So um, in the States, we, um, you might have heard of Proposition 22. I won't go into details about it, but it's um, uh, not a popular bill that was recently passed in the last um, election, um, where you know, independent drivers are considered independent contractors, right? So as independent contractors, if you're thinking about um, disability legislation, there's no protection for um, independent contractors. If, if they become injured or disabled themselves, but also they, as independent contractors, don't have to um, provide accessible vehicles, which is a conundrum, which comes back to this conundrum. And I think this is why I feel that the kind of intersectional approach that a lab can take is that you can start to peel back some of these issues of like, okay, well, how can we um, advocate for drivers when there's this issue over here. And so it, it increases the complexity around the kind of discussion around labor practices. And I, and I really bring this example in today because I think there's a really nice example of thinking about how lab work can build towards thinking about how AI kind of technology or data system really impact um, a diverse um, population, right? And so, and as well as how they impact a kind of diverse range of needs, we also can turn that around and think about, well, how did those questions generated by um, disability study scholars can feed back up the kind of pipeline for other workers in the workplace, right? So I think in that example, I really just wanted to show that, you know, is like Rose, you said earlier, is that we need diversity to avoid bias and harm, right? Absolutely. And so these, I hope these examples are kind of demonstrating what type of engagement we need to think of more inclusive ways. 
That's such a good example, really clear and useful, um, Louise. It, it uh, captures the tensions really um, explicitly. And actually, it's very helpful as we kind of come to the close of the, the discussion, which has been absolutely fascinating. Um, but before we finish, I really want to think about some of the social implications relating to the way we go about creating an AI-enabled workforce in the UK. So the process of upskilling, reskilling, continuing learning might spark broader societal discussions about the nature of work, employees' rights and concerns about the entire process, potentially exacerbating social inequalities. And actually, your example, Louise, is really interesting in terms of, of needing to think in a very wide-ranging way about the implications on multiple um, people when things change. And that is a societal issue, isn't it? So continuing from where you were, Louise, I'd really like to know how we can go about reducing the risk of worsening the social inequalities that already exist um, as we go about trying to develop the right kind of initiatives, programs, policies, strategies for the AI upskilling agenda. That would be a really nice way to, to finesse some of the points that yeah. you've been making very strongly today, please. Yeah, you know, I think it uh, has been a really great discussion because, you know, Jordan, you picked up on scale and I really admire the way that you can kind of move between the different registers of like the economics and then policies, you know, and... Um, and I think, you know, as I said earlier, you know, disability studies scholars have critiqued universal design. You know, one design doesn't work for all, right? So we, we've come up on board with that idea. And so we're thinking about kind of like the idea of disability-led design, we need to really understand the value of co-production and how we might convene around these values to think how this can be presented to policymakers, you know? And I think that is like one of the challenges that I am grappling with in my current role is really now starting to make sense of all the different methodologies, you know? I, 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 I'm, I'm so lucky that I'm able to work with so many different colleagues, you know, I I just want to include another example is um, I'm working with um, some PhD students across Goldsmith, UCL and Cambridge, and the most fascinating um, discussions that we're having is that they're, they're two anthropologists, a sociologist, and in this, these discussions, we've been really centering around the practice of description and like, how do we describe technical systems, right? And so I think these examples in the self is like, is what driving the kind of research in thinking about how does description, which you think, well, that's what an anthropologist does when they're working in the field. 
But no, but when you're really thinking about, you know, the methodology of, you know, for example, describing visual images um, for a blind person, you're really engaging with a technique that actually those type of work that's been evidence in kind of, you know, the artistic practice or the humanity-led areas of description is actually now feeding into how we describe technical systems. Mm. And no technical description will differ from a computer scientist. So I really think it really is about the value of co-production and, like, how do we... You know, we, we talk about convening stakeholders, you know, and I think, you know, we talked about pipeline as well. And I think that the, one of the biggest challenges we have right now is really thinking about, yes, convening these um, practitioners, but also thinking about what skills we have and what we all, the skills are already available and how we can kind of cross-pollinate those ideas. It's really apt um, to come back to the really important issue of interdisciplinarity, co-creation, co-design, because that's fundamental, I think, to success here. Jordan, coming back to you for the last time, earlier you were talking about um, the need for across-the-board engagement, so local as well as national, and you mentioned roles for sort of civic society uh, I'd really like to know a little bit more about the, the future skills agenda um, it, with respect to having this kind of critical civic discussion um, about any initiatives, who they should help, how we identify that, how we address people's anxieties, but also their hopes for the future. It's a complicated question and we've only got a few minutes left, but I'd love if you could have a stab at that. That would be really great. Yeah, of course. And it all it almost brings me to a, an almost philosophical moment. A lot of the discussion today, for me, boils down to one question, and that is, do you want to let people fall behind or not? Yeah. Which is inherently a philosophical, often political decision on do we want to have a safety net big enough to make sure that everyone can contribute to society or do we want a system where people just fall out at the bottom? Mm. Now, I think we can all agree that we don't want the latter. So once you've kind of made that decision, then you start to move down through the motions of, excuse me, what that actually means in terms of provision. So I'm struck, you know, listening to Louise's examples about the fact that there is uh, a lot more, I think, to do for policymakers than people give them credit for. And actually, they yeah. maybe fly away from this more so than they should do because, and this is rare to hear someone from the CBI to say, surprise, surprise, not all markets work perfectly. And uh, there are lots of benefits of a free market economy, but there are downsides. You know, the, the increased search for efficiency means that people will be phased out of jobs. And even with the most uh, empathetic politicians in the world that is probably a reality looking staring us in the face in the next kind of yeah. 10 20 years um with people on the kind of uh, person to person end of this world like me who mainly just talks every day i don't do anything technical um i'm probably the last person to get digitized because you can't get a robot to kind of make up loads of words but you can get them to become actuaries or you know mining components or things like that so 
Um, for me, there are kind of big philosophical, political questions I think we need to answer about the type of economy we want to have and the propensity of people falling out of the bottom. Um, but more generally, I think I'd like to come back to the point on careers advice and school engagement, because if we just focus on the workforce, we've missed the boat. Yes. Um, you know, these people, even me, I'm only going to be in the workforce for another 30 years, hopefully less, but probably about 30 years. Um, and if we're just focusing on people like me, um, upskilling and reskilling, then we're never going to make it. You know, we need to be starting much, much earlier. And I'm talking about kind of primary level. Yes. Um, and not talking about jobs that they want when you're 10 years old, but talking about the fact that this is how the economy works and this is what it might look like in the future. It's not quite iRobot, but we're somewhere in that middle ground. Um, so I think we need to be a bit more in my personal opinion, a bit more foundational in these conversations rather than just kind of clicking into them when people hit that kind of A-level, school leaver, early years in the workforce stage so that our children know what's coming, frankly. Yes. Um, so I think it's uh, big philosophical questions for policymakers and more foundational conversations, I think, for the existing business leaders in those schools to talk about what's coming down the track should be a good start. And I think we can do that now. I think that's a great point. In fact, I think E points have come out of the discussion today, which I found absolutely fascinating. I do wonder whether our politicians and policymakers are engaging enough with understanding AI themselves and actually whether that, that that's something that also needs to be addressed if they're really going to be able to do that kind of looking forward and strategy development and, 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 and put in place the, 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 the kinds of initiatives we're talking about. But I think your philosophical point is also uh, very well made. So thank you both, Louise and Jordan. That was a fascinating discussion, and I'm sure listeners will, will have a lot to take away from that. So thank you for joining us, and thank you to listeners for joining us. Our guests today were Dr. Louise Hickman from the Mindaroo Centre for Technology and Democracy at the University of Cambridge, and Jordan Cummins, CBI, London Head of Policy. Thank you for listening. You've been listening to Working Well with AI. This episode was presented by myself, Rose Luckin. Editing and mixing is by Susie McCarthy. The series is funded by UCL Public Policy, UCL Grand Challenges and the British Academy. To find out more about the AI and the Future of Work project, search for UCL AI and the Future of Work. Thanks for listening, and I hope you join us again next time.